Welcome to a Lanyap episode of the Swampflex podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am Boomer. And we are recording in two separate locations in the Gulf South. I think that's what I'm going to describe our general geographical area, right? Yeah, I guess the great irony is where I am, there are no swamps. I'm in like arid flicks. Well, it's like the Western lands, you know, the swamps dried up a little bit. It's getting a little dusty. There's some cowboys about, but uh, you still got your swamp roots. And we respect that here. Well, thank you. It's just bluebells and rattlesnakes as far as the eye can see. But I can't say more <laughs> for the sake of uh, my secret identity, which is in no way connected to providing my full name on swampflix.com. Well, have you been watching any movies in your uh, Texan dwelling? Yes, I have been watching things. I recently watched the film Spree, and I paid $7 for it. And I'll be honest, I think that it was worth it. Hell yeah. I've been really excited to see it. So I'm glad to have you test those waters and then report back. I really think that you are going to like it. Because I know, you know, you got us to watch Unfriended for Movie of the Month a couple of years back. And I know that you are really into like the horror of the new media or the horror of like social media. I know that you liked hashtag horror, which I haven't seen. Right. Yeah. I love any movie that is trying to warn us that the internet will kill us all. I think that is like one of my favorite niches in modern genre of filmmaking. The movie host from this year is another good example of that too. Oh, that's the zoom horror movie, right? Mm hmm. We're all living a Zoom horror lifestyle right now, so that's a great film for the current moment. Yeah, you're right. This one is not a horror, strictly. It's a black comedy. And the internet as like a concept or a being is not the danger that we're in. It's more of a God bless America falling down type pastiche, at least initially, as a dark comedy. And the ills of society are not the fault of the internet as a being like in unfriended, but as a concept, like what it uh, can drive people to do, which is where it's at its weakest. It's at its strongest when it's just gleefully like skewering all of these archetypes of social media influencers. It's truly a delight. It's clearly made by someone who understands how all of that works. And that was not me really prior to the last year or so, but I've gotten sort of interested in the CD underbelly of like, what is a YouTube celebrity? And it's been a banner year for like social media celebrities and like personalities and influencers to really be exposed frequently for being creeps and or racists and or various other horrible things that are always attracted to seats of like social cachet, whether it be on the internet or in real life. And so where Spree kind of goes off the rails is at points, it does get a little hold your hand. It holds your hand a little too much with the message that it's trying to convey. But when it's being gleeful and almost a little bit malicious, it's a much more enjoyable experience. Yeah. The review, um, I'm going to link it in the notes to this episode. But when I was reading it, the thing you were saying is that it's willingness to sort of like spell out its themes about um, why social media is evil was like kind of a turnoff. Yeah. And like it's sort of like wagging its finger at social media as a social evil. 
And that doesn't sound like it would be as big of a turnoff for me. Right. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm doubly excited about it. That was the feeling I was getting while watching it was I was like, you know, this is the kind of thing that I find distracting, but that is really up Brandon's alley. So he, when he gets around to this one, he's really going to enjoy it. Hell yeah. I love when these things are like hyper specific, like host being tied to the quarantine and like zoom experiences or hashtag horror has like a candy crush aesthetic to it. There's this other one called sick house that was filmed entirely as Snapchat stories and then was pieced together as a feature film after the fact. And then this one spree having this like ride share app cruelty to it um, on top of like the fact that influencers in particular are the like source of that evil kind of like um, angry goes West was for Instagram. I, I really like when these like movies are documenting individual moments in these like social media platforms that will disappear because they're made to be temporary until we move on to the next thing, you know? Well, it's $7, which I know is, is a lot to rent a movie. So I don't necessarily feel like you need to hop on this very quickly, but I wanted to give you my report on it and say, chef's kiss, you're going to enjoy it. I think I saw that you had watched, I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah, I watched two Netflix movies recently that I did not enjoy, and that was one of them. Oh, really? Okay. Well, yeah. you give me your thoughts first, because I also saw that, and I'm curious to see what you have to say. I almost included, at the end of the last episode, this sort of like between sections bitch session that me and Brittany and James all had where we did not enjoy that film. Well, this podcast and this blog, like we don't really like revel in not enjoying things and it wasn't fun enough for me to include it on the episode all i'll say is that i'm done trying to care about charlie kaufman especially movies he directs himself like i feel like i'm putting in a lot of effort to understand where they're coming from and to piece together what he's doing and i get frustrated every single time because i almost like them but he lets me down so hard huh. and in this case it was that i was on the hook for it for at least the part of the movie where they were stuck in the house and it became this like existential meeting the parents visit from hell that would not end and there was no exit to. And then when they left that house and the movie decided that it wasn't about Jesse Buckley at all and was actually about Jesse Plemons, that's when I was like, all right, fuck this. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> and I just kind of hopped off it. So I don't know. I, right. I, I understand that it's a movie that speaks to a lot of people, especially about like, what it means to get older and less interesting as you like go along in life. And just like the embarrassment of social ritual, especially like relationships. But I just stopped caring about halfway into it. And it's a very long film. Do you have a Kaufman that you like? Are there any of them that you like or even a favorite? I'm starting to worry that if I went back to the ones that other people directed, like Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry, like when we all fell in love with him in the early 2000s, that I wouldn't like those as much anymore either. Huh. Like, especially the, la the, the last three that I'm thinking of, Schenectady, New York, Anomalisa, and I'm thinking of anything. I left all three of them the same feeling. Like, I'm exhausted. I wish it were better than it was. And I wish someone would come in and nix some of his more frustrating ideas. Hmm. And I think the last time this happened was when Anomalisa came out and I wrote a full review, sort of aggressively negative on it. 
and you sent me a very positive review on that film and I published that one instead because I'd rather have someone explaining why they appreciate it than have my own thoughts on why I hated it. Huh. Well, I hate Synecdoche, New York. That's the worst of the three for sure. And this to me felt like Synecdoche done correctly. Like the thing about Synecdoche is it is a movie that I really dislike, but is full of images that I find completely fascinating and haunting and that often just like appear in my mind unsummoned, like the girl when she dies and her tattoos of leaves just like curl up dryly and blow away in the wind. I find that very frustrating as part of a whole film, but as just like a simple 30 second image poem, I find breathtaking. And the woman who lives in the apartment that is on fire is an image that I also think about a lot. Just her living in an apartment on fire, I find it completely fascinating as, again, just like a poetic image. And Anomalisa, I was pretty positive on. And of course, I you know enjoy his older works. Adaptation is possibly still my favorite. Being John Malkovich is great, but... This one came a close second to me. There's something about, and maybe this is what you don't like, there's something about a Kaufman movie that feels like having a disassociative episode. (laughs) In this film in particular, there was the dog that was like something out of Jacob's Ladder. But normally, when you're watching a Kaufman film, it's like you are on Jacob's Ladder because it transports you so completely to another place. And on a cognitive level, you understand that you're watching a movie, but it's so unlike any other movie that you've ever seen, even movies that are quote-unquote weird, because the just barely not quite rightness of it is enough that it like tricks you in a way. So... By the time they got to the house, I felt like I had already watched an entire beautiful movie, like a stage play. (laughs) And I was like, wow, I wonder how much is left. And it was 40 minutes in and there was still an hour and a half. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I have many more journeys to go on. Like at the end of Anomalisa, you're not questioning whether or not you exist, but you are left questioning whether some of the certain things that you think of as being solid are completely transient. Every experience that you have, that there's really nothing concrete about it. But at the end of I'm thinking of ending things, it's like, am I dead? Like, you don't actually know. It's like, how does he do it? Like, where am I? Is the first thought that you have when one of his films end. And especially this one. It completely transported me to another realm, and I have to give it supreme kudos for that. I was blown away by it, and I'm sorry to hear that that you didn't have that same experience. I gotta say, like, I really like the disorientation aspect of it, and I think that works really well when it is like a almost like an existential horror when they're at the house. What I don't care for is the choice in protagonist especially for someone who's been doing that same self-centered reads too much neurotic man point of view for like 20 something years now it's very tiring 
I don't find that character very interesting anymore if I ever did. And it felt like an especially betrayal cheat in this case where I found Jesse Buckley, like I always like her on screen. I think she's a very interesting person, especially like beast was the first thing I ever saw her in. And she was fantastic in that. So like waiting for another movie to like give her that like dark energy again. And this movie was touching on that a lot. And then for it to stop caring about her, uh, about two thirds of the way in, I was like, well, fuck you. I don't care about you either. And I kind of like mentally walked off. I found her rapturous and completely engaging. And I was completely wrapped up in her. And then when the, when the narrative like pivots, but does it pivot? But I mean, yes, it pivots, but you know, in a way that where it's kind of a twist on what you already knew, I was along for the ride. It almost felt like, like a new film to me, but I felt like I'd already watched two at that point, you know? <laughs> and some of the things that work for me about Synecdoche are just the images and a couple of the concepts, like the idea of building a perpetually smaller and smaller world, I think is is like extremely interesting if poorly executed in that. And this is a film in which the world that has been built is completely within one person's mind. And it's actually a beautiful place in there, but it's also scary as shit and really like kind of captures the feeling of having recurring thoughts or having like repetitive thoughts and processing kind of the same daydreams over and over again. It like externalizes something that felt very universal to me, but I also completely understand where you're coming from when you say that this is not the first time that he's done this and it's certainly probably not going to be the last either but the places where it definitely failed for me in the past were made up for here the whole thing is just so like bittersweet and melancholy and lonely and i also completely understand that right now like everybody already feels lonely it's a plague and there's not just the isolation that comes from trying not to get the plague. There's also the isolation that comes from having to avoid the people who think that there isn't a plague and it's exhausting, but there's also something to be said for art that takes something like that and externalizes it the way that this film did. I'm sorry that you didn't have the same experience that I did, but to each their own you know i wish i had a strong reaction to it at all and i think that's mostly what i wrote about was like there are people who think this is like a vile like unwatchable mess and then there are other people who think it's like a revelation and like you know the best film of the year and i'm in this like gray area in the middle where like after two and a half hours of effort i felt like i didn't care very much um, and then I was just sort of exhausted and like felt like I put in more effort than I got out of it. It was kind of like my breaking point with Kaufman where I don't know that I will watch his next film. And I might not have watched this one if Buckley wasn't the star because of Beast. Fair enough. I'll take that bullet from here on out. I would much rather hear you write positive things than me write. I don't care. <laughs> that's, that's a much more interesting angle. <laughs> So uh, I've been watching cheesy time travel movies the past couple weeks. That's where I've been. I rewatched the Terminator movies, the first two, mostly to prove something out of spite. I watched McGee's 
sequel to the babysitter uh-huh. called killer queen. And I absolutely hated it uh, the same way that I did not get anything out of. I'm thinking of any things. I was starting to think I was becoming a bit of a scold. I was like, why am I not enjoying things? Is it even the movie's fault? Did you enjoy the first babysitter? Oh, I liked it a lot. Yeah. I think okay. everyone on the Swamp Fix crew did. This one's boring and just empty. Mm. It's like nostalgic for the first film, even though it was only three years ago and like has a bunch of callbacks to it and just like is exhausting and not worth anyone's time. But one of the claims they perpetuate in that film is that the second Terminator movie is better than the first, which is a lie you will hear often. (laughs) And uh, just after watching uh, Killer Queen Babysitter 2, I had to go back and watch the first babysitter movie. I watched a few scenes just to confirm that I wasn't like hallucinating that that movie was actually fun. Right. And I also went back and watched both Terminator films, the first two to confirm that the first one actually is legitimately great and that people shit on it for no reason. And I stand by that too. I think that the first Terminator film is better than the second one. I think people like the second one because it is a bigger, more expensive film. It's the kind of like, $200 million blockbuster behemoth that like put Roger Corman out of business. Whereas the first one actually is the like gritty handmade DIY, like Roger Corman style sci-fi picture that just doesn't exist anymore. I should say that I like both movies. I think they're both fun, but the first Terminator film is a genre classic. And the second one is popcorn fluff and uh, kind of along with other James Cameron sequels, like the second alien film kind of like put an end to the kinds of movies I like to see. So I don't know if you have an opinion on that. I'm kind of curious. Do you, do you have like a preference between those two movies? They're both great. They're both absolutely yeah. wonderful in my opinion. I think that what James Cameron was good at and is good at is making an action movie with a strong woman lead. You see that with both of the Terminators to an extent, as well as like, aliens as well and if you really look at it it's clear that that's what titanic was supposed to be before it suddenly became like the greatest romance of all time it's about a woman on a boat that sinks spectacularly but the performances of winslet and dicaprio really made that the focal point of the marketing and thus the film's like cultural impact and i think that if that's what you love then terminator 2 is the better movie for you where you want to see Linda Hamilton really, really kick some ass. And I think that it was really smart that at that time, you know, James Cameron intentionally made the T-1000 take the appearance of an LAPD officer, that he was drawing like a political parallel there that I think gets overlooked far too often because even people on the right really love the Terminator movies. Mm -hmm. I like terminator the first one more and i do think that it's probably a better film in my opinion but it's a little bit less focused and it's a little bit more difficult to tell who the protagonist is and i understand that that can like confuse the mind in a way when you're like creating the rhetorical space of a film especially for people who are used to something that's a bit more focused on an action star because Terminator 2 is really Linda Hamilton's film. And the first one is really Michael Bean's, but also hers and also Arnold's. Arnold gets more to do in the second one too, though. I think he's a lot more fun the, the first one. He's basically just an image. And the yeah. second one is when he starts to grow a personality. 
that also is, I think, that something that people like. People like Arnold as the Terminator. And you can see that in the fact that, like, he's never the villain after the first one. A version of him might be a villain, but he is the lead once Linda Hamilton was like, nope, I'm out. To the franchise's detriment, and honestly, when they try to do something differently with Salvation, that also didn't work. So, Also a McGee sin against good taste. Um, <laughs> fuck that guy. I was so like disappointed after the babysitter. Like I was like, finally his like bubblegum pop, like Charlie's angels music video, sugar rush aesthetic has like found its niche with the babysitter. And then watching the second one, I hated it so much that I spite watched two Terminator movies and rewatched half of the first babysitter movie. Um, just to make sure I wasn't like losing my mind and like imagining things. McGee is a fickle mistress. He can make something really fun and bubbly, like a Charlie's Angels movie, and then he can make something like completely flavorless and so boring, like Terminator Salvation. Uh, so he cannot be trusted. I guess is the bigger takeaway. I didn't realize that was a McGee joint. Terminator <laughs> Salvation, huh? All right. Are there any sequels that you think are better than the original? Or at least on par? Oh, yeah, for sure. I like it when a sequel goes bigger and more bonkers than the original. Like, I love a Gremlins 2, the new batch, or a Slumber <laughs> Party Massacre 2, or um, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. I like it when things blow yeah. up the premise to such an absurd, over-the-top, dream logic delirium. Like, that is what I want out of a sequel. You know, the Terminator sequel, it's a good film, but it normalizes a lot of the like weirder aspects of the first Terminator movie. Like it makes it more of a, you know, Hollywood blockbuster film and less of a weird Roger Corman sci-fi. What's it? Yeah. It's a little more homogenous. Kind of robs the magic. And that isn't a director who has defined what that homogenous blockbuster looks like. I think, the modern MCU movie, for instance, wouldn't look and feel the way it does without James Cameron's influence on the industry. He helped carve out those borders, but I just find that less interesting than the weirder techno-noir stuff he did in the first film. So for this episode, I asked Brandon to watch A Tale of Two Sisters, which is a 2004 South Korean uh, psychological horror film about a girl who comes home from an institution of some kind and reunites with her younger sister, of whom she's very protective, as well as her distant father and her cold, emotionless stepmother. While I was watching it or rewatching it, I recognized some of the similarities to Housebound, which was the last movie that I recommended for us. But of course, it goes in a different direction and has a different ending. But it at first seems to play out mostly like a family drama uh, in which there is tension between the eldest daughter of a man and her stepmother. But there is a fairy tale aspect to it, uh, especially once 
ghosts start to appear in the house and other people perhaps see them. Brandon, I know this was a first time watch for you. How did you find it? This is like a fairly like popular film, I think, for people who caught it at the time when it came out. I think I might have watched it at the wrong time for a couple reasons. One, I watched this about half an hour after learning that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Um, and it is a very quiet film. So like my mind was racing like doomsday scenario possibilities Fair. through the early part of it. But on top of that, um, it's also a movie that came out in the early 2000s. I want to say after or like towards the end of like the J horror wave of stuff like, you know, the ring or suicide club or audition. There's like extreme Japanese horror films. Yeah. That like made a mark here. And I was reading about this movie's kind of legacy, a tale of two sisters. And it, it's listed as the first of the like modern Korean horror films to be internationally exported. Like it was like the first Korean horror film to play in the United States, according to Wikipedia. Right. Um, it also has a stat on there from a dead link citation in 2009 saying it was the highest grossing Korean horror film of all time, which is not true anymore because Couldn't possibly over the past be. like 10 or 15 <laughs> years. Yeah. If you think of like old boy or the handmaiden or even parasite, like yeah. that's just cannot be true anymore. So this movie's like very culturally significant, I think, as like kind of an artifact from that transition from like when we had new French extremity films and extreme Japanese horror films sort of like seeping over into like the American genre market. Yeah. Um, and I think if I caught this at that time, it might have stuck out to me more as like something really exceptional. Which is all to say, I still really liked it. I, I think it's a, like a really solid ghost story. A lot of the twists that it hangs itself off of were very familiar. And, you know, I saw at least 85% of them coming. Yeah. But it still has this like really great sense of style to it. It's got this like quiet, eerie mood, um, some really striking images. I don't know that it's like my favorite of the like recent Korean horror exports from like the past decade or so, but I think it's a really good example of it. And obviously it's done some good if it opened the gates for like a Park Chan-wook or a Bong Joon-ho to come through um, and make even weirder, more exceptional stuff. Yeah, it is a quiet movie and it has a very traditional ghost story-ness to it. There's something almost like the turn of the screw about it and just the quietness and the way that it takes place in this country house that I don't know culturally if it was intended to evoke a certain Westernness about it in the sense that like every time our lead goes searching through drawers or packets of food, the language on it is English, or at least the packaging has English on it in addition to Korean. And so there's something that's sort of weirdly evocative of like a Western ghost narrative in it that I find kind of fascinating because the ghosts within it are still very of the Korean like ideology of what ghosts do and are and are like. We have very different folk tales, and this evokes a sort of Western aesthetic and location almost, perhaps intentionally, or perhaps I'm just projecting that with the presence of like more traditional Korean ghosts, which I think is pretty like a fascinating like dichotomy there. 
if there is a bridge there, it might just be like ghosts as trauma or like ghosts as like an echo of past abuse. Like this is very much a movie about like the cycles of abuse, especially like the stepmother character, like hurting one of the sisters and then the other sister coming in to comfort her. I don't know how much we want to get into the like revelations, but like there's a abuse cycle where it's like someone will hurt you and then apologize for it after the fact. Right. And that cycle just sort of continues over and over again. And I, I think that ghosts are a good metaphor for that kind of like lingering trauma and like how a past abuse can like sort of like hang over a family and haunt it literally. So I, I think that is cross-cultural here at least. Um, even if like the, the folklore that this movie's based off of is not the Western version of it. But like you said, like the setting is very much like an old dark house, like Gothic horror kind of familiar ghost movie setting too. Yeah. And then the ghosts itself, when you see it on the screen, look very like Eastern imagery. What about the performances? Uh, did any of them in particular stand out to you? I love the stepmother character in this film. I know that she is like a villain <laughs> in the uh, eyes of the two girls. And as the movie like goes on, that's justified and questioned, sort of alternates with the audience. Like you're not sure whether or not she is as abusive as the girls see her as being. Right. But when you first meet her, it just seems like she's like trying too hard to keep the family together. Basically you have these like two girls that she has become a mother figure for to their reluctance. Yeah. And she's like trying to hold this household together while the dad is doing nothing. He's like a ghost in the house. He's just sort of like despondently like trudging along, making sure his kids take their pills to keep their like mental state in check. Uh, but otherwise he like does nothing to parent them. Meanwhile, this like stepmom is overachieving as like both a parent and a disciplinarian. And obviously the conflict of the movie is that she is an abusive person as well. And like physically abuses them when they're out of line. And that's what causes a lot of the pain in the film. But I also found her like oddly charming in moments, even after she's exposed as a villain, like her performance is like really fun to watch and really fragile, especially in that dinner sequence where she like is trying to conjure happier childhood memories with her brother-in-law and it's not working. I think that it's supposed to be her brother. Okay. Her sister-in-law and her brother then. Yeah. 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 She's like conjuring these like childhood memories in this like manic state where she like gets more and more excited trying to get everyone else on the same page with how she remembers their childhood and no one's biting it. And that's like when the jig is up kind of like the movie sort of like starts unraveling more and more from there. And I think she's doing the most as far as like performances go. I feel open to spoiling this movie. It is 15 years old at this point and people can choose not to listen further, I guess, if they want, but. I think yeah. it's, it's kind of fundamental to discussing it in certain ways, but we eventually learn that both the younger sister and the stepmother exist only in the elder daughter's mind, at least for much of the film. We learn that the younger daughter, in fact, died previously, almost at exactly the same time as their mother, and she has been living in this house alone with her father and imagining all of these interactions, both like the sedate, quiet moments with her sister, as well as her like open conflict with her stepmother. It's all been in her mind. And we talk, you know, you were talking about the cycle of abuse. And it's like, I, 
it's present in the film, but I don't know that we ever really get confirmation that this stepmother was really consistently abusive. You know, we do learn that at least the daughter believes that she left the younger sister to die. And I think maybe she did, but I don't think that she, the demonstrations of like physical abuse that she acted against other aspects of her own personality were necessarily drawn from like the woman's actual behavior based on what we see of her other than in one moment of weakness. But I don't know if you feel the same way. I think the movie makes you constantly question how good of a person the stepmother is. Like we don't know for sure because it is all filtered through this young girl who remembers things in an unreliable narrator point of view. Right. But the sister she is imagining, right? She is trying to protect this sister from the abusive stepmother. The stepmother does not abuse her. She abuses the quieter one of the, of the pair. And even though neither character is real, as real as any fictional character is, she's like feeling guilt over not being able to protect her. But the way it plays out in the movie is that if she is the same person, if she is the stepmother and herself, then she is abusing this character and then coming to comfort her immediately after the fact. So there's this like cycle of like guilt and abuse that she is perpetuating. um, And then like literally beats herself up over uh, as it comes to a head. I don't have any solid takes on like what happened before her psychological break. But what we, what we watch for most of the movie is like, this character like hurting people as two different personas and then comforting them after the fact, which, you know, I think you're clued into, especially as like a modern audience after seeing the like, Oh, this person didn't actually exist twist so many times, you know, after the sixth sense or more recently good night, mommy, I think is a good example, but like we've been kind of been trained to, pay attention to who is talking to whom and who is responding to whom. So like if a character is like quiet and doesn't pipe up when another character in the room is talking, then we were like, Oh, they don't exist. Like, yeah, I kind of knew what was up, even though I didn't know exactly where it was going. But yeah, so I knew this, the same character was like abusing and then comforting her sister over and over again. So I don't know whether or not that's like a real life scenario that she was fixing in her head or if she imagined that part. I I have no answers for that. This was, uh, you know, not my first watch. And it's certainly a movie that I wanted to see again, mostly because my theater going experience of seeing this film was not uh, very good. There was a lot of uh, distraction. And it kind of was a like a not a fun time for me. I felt like very uh, claustrophobic in my original viewing. And I wanted to see this again and see how I felt about it without that level of like in-person distraction. And knowing the twist and being able to see where it happens, it, it does have both more and less value in the rewatch in the sense that the little details are more prevalent. But like you said, it's also no longer truly novel for that to happen. The fight club reveal as it were. So yeah, but I appreciate you giving this one a watch. I very much enjoyed it. And I don't want to sound like I didn't. And I I'm just saying that, yeah, like it's not novel anymore because we've been gifted with so much art like this. Yeah. But if you think back to like, 
the late nineties, early two thousands when this, like, I know this is not a Japanese film, but like when that J horror influence came into American cinemas and new French extremity was an example of this as well. Like what was in theaters in America at the time was a lot of torture porn and PG 13 remakes of like better films from like 30 years earlier. So like there was just like an absence of imagination in mainstream horror filmmaking at the time. So like for these foreign films to come in and go for genuine dread and these like quiet moments with these like hallucinatory images and with these like shocking plot reveals was like a much bigger deal. And if I had seen this in 2004, like before I had ever seen a Bong Joon-ho movie um, before like the Korean genre renaissance were like currently enjoying hit i i would have had a completely different experience with it and i'm kind of jealous of anyone who saw it at that time i did see it many years later i only saw this a couple of years ago and you know there was a very j-horror had become so popular in the wake of the ring which was just two years prior to this and within that first couple of years i kind of think of the two big examples of that like succeeding and failing in the u.s is you know, The Ring did it and made it so popular. And then Sarah Michelle Gellar's The Grudge came out and everybody was like, I'm over this now. And it was just two short years between those two, right? And there was blowback against The Grudge where it became like kind of the thing, the next big thing. It's like, okay, well, what about K-horror? And back in 2004, when I was at boarding school, the university that it was on, the campus of, there was a Professor Snowden, and his daughter was Juliet Snowden, whose like husband and writing partner was Styles White. And they actually came to the university and gave like a little talk about like just making a movie um, and like writing a screenplay and how you really don't have a lot of control over what eventually ends up on screen. And they had just had The Boogeyman come out in 2003. Like they wrote that one and a couple of other things. And the thing that they were working on at the time was another K-horror adaptation. And they said specifically, that is what people want right now. And I think that that eventually came out with a completely like westernized like adaptation with something about a cell phone, like one missed call or... That sounds right. Yeah. I think this is different than what did call as well, though. Like, it's not trying to capitalize on that movement. It just happens to be Um, one of the first ones from this country to be exported here. Yeah. Like, this is not a cynical cash grab in any way, especially since it's, like, based on a fairly popular folklore tale. Like, it, it feels like it's coming from a genuine place. It just feels very much of its time in that same way that those movies do. Yeah. And unfortunately, the scans of it that you can watch on Amazon Prime and on Shudder right now are like also of that time. It looks like when we were exporting so many of these Asian horror films across the globe in the early 2000s, that was like a great thing for those movies on like an international exposure sense. But like no one has kept up with them since then. Like the scan of this that's on current streaming platforms is like, basically like DVD quality. It looks like I ripped a DVD off, off of YouTube or something. Um, and it's kind of shameful. <laughs> I was a little shocked by it. Cause when I saw it, it was at the Alamo draft house and they had a print and it, it looked great. And watching this, I was like, Oh man, it's not very often that I, who 
has I'm a person who has VHS artifacts in his dreams that I can really tell the difference and be like, <laughs> oh, oh, this is like a notable quality drop. But I could tell this time. I think maybe if I caught this in a movie theater, especially since it's such a quiet film and I was in like a uh, distracted state of mind when I watched it, like I might have had a stronger reaction to it if it was a little cleaned up and like more beautiful because there's like a striking use of color in it as well, um, especially with like the, the wallpapers in the house. But even like with all those qualifiers about like how, you know, it's more familiar now than it might have been at the time and such and such. It's still a really good ghost story. It's a really good, solid movie. It's just the things that make it like interesting on a plot level is something that has become like familiar to us. Like if you watch enough horror films, this is territory you've seen before. You kind of just have to hone in on the distinguishing details, like a few images when the ghosts arrive or like that performance from the stepmom, I think is like kind of singular within the genre. I don't know if you agree on that. Oh yeah. She is giving a really strong performance. She is just really selling this like coldness with that's mixed with like the language of caring. It's, it's really something to behold. And if you watch enough of those like Disney movies where they try to inject meaning and like nuance to like villains from the past, like I'm thinking of like Maleficent or what is that? Like a uh, Ryan Murphy nurse ratchet show just came out this weekend. Oh um, my gosh. I think she kind of does that for like the wicked stepmother from uh, other Disney fairy tale type stories. Like she is like a complex nuanced character in a way that archetype usually isn't. Yeah, absolutely true. Well, uh, you said that you were going to make me rewatch a giallo I didn't like. What are we doing next? This is another Shudder film that you watched in an uncomfortable screening at Alamo Draft House. I want to rewatch All the Colors of the Dark. Yeah. Okay. To be fair, that was not a Draft House. That was the Austin Film Society. But okay. Yeah. I forgot that uh, I had committed to that. So I'm ready. I'm ready to, to watch this in the comfort of my own home and also in a complete edit, apparently. Yeah. This is so weird because I, I just watched that movie and then I read some negative reviews on Letterboxd that said they watched a cut of it that was under a different title and was incomplete. And I was like, that sounds so familiar. And I had completely forgotten that you had already reviewed this film under a different title. So yeah, I think we're going to watch this satanic ritual, Jalo horny nightmare movie, <laughs> all the colors of the dark next time we talk. All right. Just in time for uh, Halloween. Yeah, I think we're, we're going to do mostly spooky things for the next month. Actually, next week, um, before that episode, me and Hannah are going to talk about the movie She Dies Tomorrow, which is Amy Simons' directorial debut, I believe, which is about like doom and gloom in the modern world and about how hearing that you are going to die soon infects your mind like a viral curse, huh. which is very relatable, I think, in the current climate. So we're going to be talking about a lot about uh, movies where language is a virus uh, that seeps into your mind and drives you crazy and makes you want to die. That's the kickoff to Halloween. <laughs> All right. I mean, it's the spookiest time of our lives. So here we go. It's like our entire lifetime is the Halloween era, you know, nonstop cosmic horror. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.